I don't think there's a need to close the gap statistically with quotas and making sure everything's even. I'm Scott Jess, currently an assistant professor in earth science at Washington State University in Pullman, Washington. That's the goal, to ensure that we create academic spaces or a field that ensures everyone gets to be who they are and do the work that they love with their own unique perspectives. So access programs in general are important, but particularly mentoring programs that focus on increasing the pool of candidates when we attempt to hire into faculty positions. I am Lindsay Shainbaum. I'm an earth science professor, and I'm also the chair of the Department of Chemical and Physical Sciences at the University of Toronto, Mississauga. At the departmental level, we've normalized discussion of equity, diversity, and inclusion yeah. within the department, and I think that's been valuable in changing the tone. Equitable environments in academia. Hello, and welcome to View to the U, an eye on the UTM academic community. I'm Carla DeMarco at U of T Mississauga. View to the U is a monthly podcast that will feature UTM faculty members and students from a range of disciplines who will illuminate some of the inner workings of UTM science labs, enlighten the social sciences and humanities hubs on campus, and put a spotlight on our academic community at large. On this season called UTM in the Community, I introduce you to some of the people from our vibrant and ever-growing scholarly community, from some of our UTM faculty members and leadership team to students who are making an impact with various communities, both at the local level and on a global scale. On today's episode of View to the U, my guests are Scott Jess and Lindsay Shanebaum. Lindsay is a faculty member in the Department of Chemical and Physical Sciences, where she has served as its chair since 2019. And Scott, a former postdoc in Lindsay's lab, is currently a faculty member in the School of the Environment at Washington State University. Over the course of this interview, Scott and Lindsay talk a bit about their field, geosciences, and how they got into this particular area of research, but also, and dare I say, even more importantly, they talk about their motivations for partnering up for a very profound collaboration that they undertook, a demographic survey of Canadian academic geosciences. Their Demographic Trends in Canadian Academic Geoscience report was published in 2023. The findings in this report are stark and, as will be discussed, focus primarily in relation to the state of equity, diversity, and inclusion, or what's commonly referred to as EDI or DEI, in the geosciences. However, the statistics, which are not widely available in Canada, one of the reasons Scott spearheaded this research with Lindsay and Emily here from the University of Calgary in the first place, but there are stats out of the U.S. that indicate a lack of diversity across other fields. For example, the Diversity and STEM, Women, Minorities, and Persons with Disabilities report, produced by the U.S. National Science Foundation, NSF for short, indicate that when it comes to gender, which is only classified in their report as male-female, that 59% of doctoral degree recipients in science and engineering in 2020 are male, while 41% of recipients are female. Disparities become much more pronounced in terms of race and ethnicity. 70% of doctoral degree recipients in science and engineering are people who identify as white, and people with a disability accounted for just about 10% overall of doctoral degree recipients in science and engineering. 
And through Scott Lindsay and Emily's report, they find the big drop in numbers appears when it comes to salaried positions, such as doctoral and faculty for researchers. Over the course of this interview, Scott defines a lot of the terminology that gives this report context, along with discussing the baseline this survey establishes, upon which to hopefully improve, or at the very least, assess whether the initiatives or programs that have been implemented by different institutions are narrowing the gaps in representation. And in conjunction with our theme for this season of the podcast, Lindsay and Scott offer some advice for how we can all help to foster a more inclusive and equitable community in academia and beyond. Lindsay Shanebaum is a professor in the Department of Chemical and Physical Sciences at U of T Mississauga. She is completing her fifth year as chair of the department, having started her term in 2019. Lindsay earned a PhD at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in Cambridge, Massachusetts, before going on to do two postdoctoral positions, one as research associate and an Alexander von Humboldt postdoctoral fellow, both at the Universität Potsdam in Germany. Lindsay joined the faculty at UTM in 2009. Scott Jess is an assistant professor of Earth Surface Processes at Washington State University in the School of the Environment. He completed a Bachelor of Science in Earth Science at the University of Glasgow and a PhD in Geology at the University of Aberdeen, both in Scotland. Scott also completed two postdoctoral positions, one at the University of Calgary in 2019 and one at UTM from 2021 to 2023 in Lindsay's lab. Scott Jess joined the faculty at Washington State University in 2023. And please note, Scott, Lindsay, and Emily's report, as well as the NSF report and their respective websites and an article that Lindsay references by Dancy and Hadari, are all available in the show notes. I'm in the field of tectonic geomorphology and landscape evolution. So I look at how tectonic plates move around on the surface of the earth. When they collide, they build topography. And then I look at how erosional forces tear that topography back down. So I look at rivers and glaciers and sometimes wind, how they affect the landscape. And then I also look at how you can read the landscape to try to quantify tectonic signals. So for example, we try to quantify slip rates on faults, and then that plays into hazards and earthquakes and things like that. And I work around the world, so I have projects in South America and in China and in Nepal and in Western Canada at the moment. It's important to know that I used to work for Lindsay as her postdoc, which is how we know each other. So our research areas somewhat overlap. My title is an assistant professor of earth surface processes Similar to Lindsay, I look at how the Earth's surface evolves on a modern scale, but also in the geological scale as well, primarily focusing in areas where, unlike the places like the Himalayas, where Lindsay focuses on in what's called collisional tectonics, I look at where the Earth's plates are being turned apart, extensional environments, so places like East Africa and the Appalachians and places where we have ocean basins, and then the sediments that we find in those basins as well. I've known I was going to be a geologist for a long time. I think a lot of people come to it at different stages in life, but I came to it when I was in grade eight and I took a class with a very inspirational teacher and I was really moved by the thinking about the spatial scales and the temporal scales involved in understanding the earth. I remember looking at a map of the ocean floor and just being blown away by the fact that there are huge mountain ranges underwater that I didn't know about. And so I've known I wanted to do this kind of work for a long time and I've really been lucky in having a career that's allowed me to do it. But what we're talking about today is 
not the disciplinary research that I'm involved in, but it's research in the field of equity, diversity, and inclusion. And so I can say a little bit about what brought me to care about this deeply, and it really has to do with personal experiences. I'm certainly like a positional statement. I'm a white woman, but I enjoy all sorts of other privileges in life. I'm not the first person in my family to have a PhD. You know, I come from a strong economic background. I live in North America, and so I've had a lot of advantages in life, but I certainly have often been the only woman in the room in my field. I remember early days when I started attending conferences and had this like shocking realization that there was maybe 15% of the room would be women, even less speakers. And I remember always counting attendees and speakers in the margins of my conference books. They were back on paper, you know, back in the day. And, you know, I'm in a field where we do a lot of field work and that's a rough, uh, rugged outdoors field. And so there's a lot of men in my field and I felt like I had to sort of be tough and keep up. And, you know, I certainly have dealt with microaggressions on a daily or weekly basis and more direct harassment. And then I have a lot of women who are friends who've been harassed in small and really shockingly large ways over the years. And so that being a woman in STEM is something that I have cared about for a long time and felt angry about, I would say. And then I'm the chair of the Department of Chemical and Physical Sciences. Right now I'm in the last year of my term, so it's been four and a half years or so. And I felt quite excited or empowered when I first came into that role that maybe I could finally do something. And I think I was mistaken. I could have done something earlier, but it was nice to have a position where I thought I finally could support other people like me through their experiences. And I think we have made a lot of progress in the department in the last couple of years. But I think I also, unfortunately, quite recently came to realize that it's not just about women, that there are lots of people who struggle to be accepted and supported in the field of earth science. And so I've done a bit of work, I think, in the last couple of years to try to become more aware of other underprivileged groups or underrepresented groups and intersectionality and so on. And so we've done work in the department. And then, you know, as we mentioned, Scott came in to do a postdoc with me a couple of years ago, and he'll tell you about his research, which is amazing in the discipline, but he also is an amazing advocate for EDI. And the reason that I am involved in this research is entirely because of Scott and his initiative and his idea to sort of observe this gap in the data and fill it. And so I'm very lucky that he brought me along on this research journey. Thank you so much. And so then, Scott, if you want to speak to some of what Lindsay has alluded to here, I am curious to hear how this became such an important platform for you as well. It's a simple but long story, which I'll try and make as concise as possible, where geoscience is one of these kind of subjects that isn't wildly taught across high schools. And you get a lot of people will only really engage with it at an early stage once they enter university. So it's already kind of a barrier into it. I grew up in Scotland, which very fortunately is one of those few countries in the world which provides free education, higher education for university. The opportunity to go to university was always kind of a privilege given to me just because I was Scottish in its own right. And so it wasn't really until I got to university that I really began to engage with earth science. I think I originally went to do physics and sadly hated it. I just wasn't very good at it at a university level. So I transitioned into earth science after finding a great engagement with the subject itself and the privileges that are offered with things like fieldwork and stuff like that. And I think really for that early undergraduate stage, I was surrounded by women specifically, especially white women, importantly, on all scales for a long time. Scotland is a very, very white country to start with. So the intersectional element of race doesn't necessarily play a huge role in my experience up to that point. But at an undergraduate level, half, if not more of my class were women. And I had a number of women faculty members teaching me. When I moved into a PhD eventually in Scotland at the University of Aberdeen, a large number of my colleagues, postdoctors and PhD students were also, especially white women. And then as I began to climb further and further up that order into eventually a postdoc system, 
I'd engaged with EDI work during my PhD, but once I moved to Canada, where there is a much greater racial diversity, there is multiculturalism in Canada, there is obviously an indigenous population that we don't have in Scotland. So these are elements that we don't have to discuss necessarily within the concept of Scottishness, shall we say. Things become a bit more clear and a bit more obvious to me about those social disparities. And as a secondary observer coming into that space from a very white, very privileged background, things very much change and how you perceive society or certainly the geoscience society, shall we call it, very much changed for me. And so I was very, very fortunate. I have, as a postdoc, I worked with two PIs or two bosses who were both women who, like Lindsay has said, had severe difficulties and barriers placed in front of them. And especially kind of growing up with two strong women and my mother and my sister, you start to recognize some of those issues and those barriers. And there's a deep desire to do something. I think there's an anger that comes with it. And this is kind of where we're maybe heading here. At the time, it was difficult for me to do anything. I had no experience or anecdotal evidence to provide. There was no lived experience for me to talk about the issues that I had faced sailing through as the privileged man that I was. And so eventually we get to a point where as a postdoc, there became to be an interest in actually trying to look at the data that we have. I'm a quantitative geoscientist. I like looking at data. Sadly, it's probably how my brain works in the best way and beginning to spot just a real lack of it in trying to understand these things, which is kind of how we get to the, the point that we're talking about today. It's amazing that the two of you were able to carve this space out together because I think this is a really interesting report. But so then this does bring me to what we're here to talk about today primarily is the report that you did in geoscience is called a demographic survey of Canadian academic geoscience. And you've already alluded to some of it, but the findings are quite stark. And I just wondered if you could define some of what this report has illuminated for you both and particularly the results that took you by surprise. I think it's maybe important to prefix some of this answer. I will try I make it concise, but there will be a lot of language we'll start using here that does have specific terminology that I think will help in explaining some of this data. It's very common for me now to be asked what DEI means, EDI, DEI, however you choose to organize it, because DEI has just become this abbreviation that people just throw around to really encompass a wide variety of things. And I think it's important sometimes to define what some of those terms mean off the bat, which is doing diversity, which is effectively what we're doing here, is a metric. It's the ability to define if a room has a greater diversity or less diversity than another room, whether that's by gender, whether that's by race, whether that's by age. Equity is the door that lets people into that room and who is controlling that door and ensuring that that is a free space for individuals to move in and out of that space if they are so qualified. And then inclusion is what happens when people are in that space. Do they feel comfortable? Do they feel safe? Do they feel part of that room and part of that community? And so those three are all very interconnected and very important. But the data that we have collected is really defining diversity. We're measuring diversity at a range of scales and then using that to interpret if there are equity or inclusion issues based on that data. And I think that's important to contextualize this data in this report within that. We will be referring specifically to a couple of terms as a way of describing some things. And primarily, a lot of these are based on Stats Canada, who collect these data because we had to compare our data to Stats Canada. We have terms like racialized, which is effectively any individual who is not white or indigenous. We have LGBTQ+, which is a broad spectrum of terms relating to the sexual orientation, but also gender identity spectrum. And then we have FNIM, which we will be using as an indigenous term referring to uh, First Nations Inuit and Métis. And also disabled, I should bring up as well, which is anyone who identifies as having a disability or self-identifies as a disability. I think those terms are just important to kind of set down before I start talking about the data itself. So within that, some of the major things that we come across here, firstly, is that none of this data is surprising. Much of the anecdotal reports and evidence and commentaries that have been written for a long time is just really this data supports that. We do have issues with 
gender representation, race representation, LGBTQ representation, indigenous representation across the broad field of geosciences as a whole. One of the major takeaways from that is that we see that within research students, so masters and PhD students, we have a very diverse group. We have a very strong balance of gender. We actually see a lot more women in those positions. We have a strong racialized population. The LGBTQ representation is high as well as FMIM, especially in master students. But when we move over into what we defined as salaried researchers, i.e. postdocs and faculty members, that just completely falls out and representation drops across gender, across race, across LGBTQ representation, across indigenous representation and disability representation. We see a significant drop in numbers as soon as we cross that line, with drops of around 40% in almost every category. And so that's a very stark and fairly well-known problem. We are a diverse group of geoscientists at a student level, but not at a salaried level, at a postdoc or faculty level. And that in itself is a problem for representation, for mentorship, and for those in positions of power to acknowledge the experiences of other individuals, especially in that student population. So that's one of the most stark things that we see coming through this data. The other kind of second and probably easiest to define problems we see is within the context of tenure within faculty members. Tenure is that process upon which a faculty member will move into a more stable employment under a tenured position. It can take five to six years for them to build a reputation or build enough of a background to be considered stable enough for that employment, for that tenured position. It's something I'm going through right now at Washington State. But when we asked individuals who were tenured in what year they received tenure with a mix of their other demographic data, we find a 10-year period between 2007 and 2017, where 54% of our white respondents achieved tenure and no Indigenous or FNIM and no racialized persons received tenure at all in that time. And so that cannot be seen as face value, but it's important to know that either that suggests that Indigenous individuals or racialized persons are not getting tenure or that they are leaving the field and there's a lack of retention that we are seeing from our respondents. And so there is a way of climbing that ladder and then entering tenure could be seen as kind of a latter step that gets you into very secure employment. And we are just not really seeing that, especially for racialized and FNIM academics in the field. Mm -hmm. If I could just ask a follow-up that I understand that this is the data. Does your research get into reasons why there is such a drop? Across the, from student to salary researcher? Yeah. I'm just wondering if you can point to some of the reasons why there is such a disparity there. So I will open this, and I'm sure Lindsay will have many things to say about this as well, where there is this rather, I would refer to it as maybe a patronizing terminology called the leaky pipeline, which is referred to as generally related to a lot of minority groups, gender, race, etc., where individuals are consistently dropping out of the academic pipeline due to a wide variety of stresses. There's family planning associated with especially being a cis woman, but there's also just the general burdens that can come with an, an inclusive environment, the extra weight responsibility that falls on, shall we say, racialized faculty to mentor racialized students or to be on EDI committees and to lead EDI committees and to do a bulk of the work to improve a department. And the leaky pipeline itself doesn't necessarily fit, I think, because it's a very passive mechanism suggesting that there's just a small crack and passively these people are falling away. It was better described in a nature comment recently by Vernon 2022 as the hostile obstacle course, where individuals like myself, white cis men, can easily ascend that ladder with very few problems in their way or barriers in their way, while anyone from a minority group is faced with a wide variety of issues. And so there's an equity issue there, probably, of bias in, in hiring 
protocols, possibly. I won't speak too much to that with a lack of experience. But then there's also maybe a lack of inclusion in that space. So once you finally get into that space, you will get microaggressions thrown at you saying that you're only there because of your minority status or because of certain things. And that does not build a sense of belonging. That does not build a sense that you want to be there. And I am sure, I cannot speak obviously from my own experience, that over time that will just erode away at your desire to be in that space and that there may be issues there. That's what I can say from the literature as a cis white man. I'm sure Lindsay may have other things to add to that. Yeah, I mean, I think everything you said is huge. The slow wearing down of individuals and discouraging them from continuing on in the field. And I think, Scott, you opened my eyes to this quite a bit. And I think the study just backs it up really incredibly well. But I think that postdoc transition is really important now that in order to get a faculty position, you do need to pass through this purgatorial zone of (laughs) a postdoc. And postdocs are are difficult. You know, usually you have to move and usually for a a relatively short period of time. So it can be very disruptive to uproot, you know, whatever family or community you've established. You're not making very much money during that time. And so there's a lot of economic stress. And I think people from underrepresented groups often don't have the sort of resources or privileges that would allow them to uproot their life and sort of continue to have less salary during that period. And so that's a problem. But from sort of a policy or department chair perspective, we've spent a lot of time in the department and I think as a university and really as a community in thinking about our hiring practices for faculty. And everybody now is undergoing unconscious bias training before sitting on one of these committees. And we have a lot of support for implementing best practices when we do our searches and when we're doing the interviews and speaking with candidates and so on. So I think we have done better recently in terms of hiring more diversely, but we don't have a lot of candidates. And so when we get people applying, I think we do a better job, I would say, than we have in the past of paying attention to diversity and to unconscious bias, but we don't have a lot of people applying. And people really do have to have a postdoc. And we've paid attention to faculty hiring, but we have not paid attention to postdoc hiring (laughs) at all. And so what good are we doing if we're missing that critical step and not paying attention to that? So it's both our hiring practices for postdocs, but also how we advertise them. Postdocs are often found through word of mouth. And you know we know that white men tend to have stronger networks that connect them to opportunities like postdocs. They tend to be more privileged in the way they ask for those opportunities, reaching out for those opportunities. So actually just finding the postdoc in the first place is a pretty significant barrier. And these are problems that I think are addressable through policy, maybe through some money, but we could address them. Yeah. And I have seen some funding opportunities that have cropped up over the past, I'd say, five years, maybe, Uh uh, that are specifically open to Black or racialized students and specifically sometimes postdoc, but also graduate funding Mm -hmm. to help. So that has been an amazing amount of information um, (laughs) trying to process all of this. And I know that you did touch on this about your impetus for doing the study in the first place. So I just wonder if you could speak a little bit more about that, because as I understand, it was partly that some of this data did not exist in Canada. And so, Scott, if you wanted to speak a little bit more to that piece of just trying to find this data. Yeah, there's kind of maybe three pieces that fit into this event diagram a little bit. There's one which is through uh, PhD and through postdoc up to that point, I'd done a lot of representative work for EDI and DI work. And one of my underlying qualms that I bring up is that there's a great weight, importantly, that's placed on faculty members, generally universities as a whole, for faculty members to come up with solutions to fix these issues. And what I would argue, I'm a pretty okay tectonic geomorphologist, but my ability to come up with solutions for EDI is not what I'm trained in doing. 
And so I was working in many of these committees and we are really just kind of going, well, what could we do? We do our reading, we try and engage with as much reading as possible, but then we don't really have any data to work out, well, who should we be targeting? Is there a large number of racialized students in our undergraduate? Is there a large LGBTQ plus population in our student base that we should be focusing on to make sure they feel inclusive and safe? And without that data as a foundation, it's very, very difficult to then really create solutions that are effective and help promote that inclusivity and that equity across a, a department. Mm-hmm. So there's that lack of data. And then for a long time, I have a very good friend, Emily. She works in public health as an epidemiologist. And we've had many, many conversations over the years about how you collect demographic data and how to do it. And it got to a point where I was trying to write something along the lines of the postdoc experience in Canada, trying to get my thoughts on some of the stuff that Lindsay's already mentioned. And part of that was to try and back it up with some data. And as I started looking for data for the postdoc experience of maybe looking for the gender balance in Canada or the racialized or indigenous populations for postdocs in Canada, I found just not a lot. There is the National Postdoctoral Association, which is a very, very good group who work brilliantly, but they collect a survey, I think, every five years, but they did not have field-specific data. They just have for all postdocs in Canada. And so I was trying to think about geoscience specifically, and I couldn't find any more data. And as I started to look for this data, I kept going down rabbit holes. In 2019, Stats Canada did a survey of post-secondary researchers and faculty that did have field-specific data. I reached out to Stats Canada to ask for some of that data, and they were not particularly forthcoming with it. They were asking for payment for some of that data, and it was it was a significant amount of money. And I remember really sitting in my kitchen at one point after receiving that email and getting really angry. This isn't great. I need data to try and understand, to try and make some of these arguments. I would like that data. And I just at that point kind of went, oh, okay, I'm going to Let's do this then. Let's collect that data. And if it wasn't for my friend Emily, who I was able to turn to and go, okay, how the hell do we do this? And then with Lindsay's support as well to go, okay, I'm going to do this. This sounds a bit crazy. Are you okay with that? Which she was very forthcoming with. We then been able to build up the idea of disseminating effectively a voluntary demographic survey of about 24 questions across master's student, PhD students, postdocs, and faculty members at Canadian Geoscience departments, of which I believe is 35 in total. That's the moment upon which this nucleated, but very much built on kind of the foundations of many other things in my head. I know that you said that there were stats available in the US, and I think you warned me about you could go on a tangent about this, but can you say how we differ in Canada from the US in this area? Yes. So this is this is more stuff as we've come to write up the report. There was a desire to compare our statistics to other international countries, especially colonial countries like the US and Australia, as well as European countries without necessarily a history of recent colonialism. And what we discovered is just this real mixed bag of data statistics, really piecemeal. What we had managed to collect was data from a very wide range of geoscience across a variety of demographic indicators, gender, race, indigeneity, sexual orientation, tenure, a wide variety of these things. And what we found from some of the data is really just one piece of information, maybe, from one area that you cannot connect to something else. And so the National Science Foundation in America does, I would say, a fairly good job of collecting a lot of statistics. America is a very data-heavy country when we come to these kind of things. And the National Science Foundation produces a huge amount of data every year outlining things like their graduate populations and their undergraduate populations. And they will do some breakdown of those populations. So we have sex, for example, between males and females. We do have what they refer to as ethnicity, which mm-hmm. is five categories, depending whether the individual is Hispanic, Alaska Native American, Indian. Asian is a term, Black or African American, white, or more than one. Unfortunately, though, they only present data by field. So outside of just like the entire graduate population, they only present data from U.S. 
civilians and permanent residents, which is only 60% of the data. So that's ignoring 40% of that population entirely, which theoretically would be probably a slightly more diverse category as well, coming from outside the US perhaps. And then in the UK, we have some of this data. We have gender for higher education in what's called geography or science, which is again presented on a yearly basis. But again, we can't look at any intersectionality. We only really have gender or race. We can't combine them, for example. We struggled to find any data from Australia. We did find some work that collected data passively through websites. But there are countries out there, Germany, France, Italy, Australia itself as well, at a national and federal level, Canada I would include into this that just don't collect racial data at mm. all as a statement of policy. They do so under the guise of trying to stop race science or colorblindness, which is something I think is a noble goal, but yeah. it does open up a space for basically the inability to establish any kind of racial trends in data. And it has been argued in the medical community for a while that racial data is a really important way of highlighting some of these issues and disparities, but we are choosing kind of not to do that in places like Canada, France, and Germany to ensure these minority groups are protected instead of trying to identify the issues that exist. So it's quite a complex discussion about trying to compare data sets and trying to overlap these data sets. And it becomes very, very difficult. And then we move into really federal government policies and decisions about collecting data as a whole. I think this does sort of lead into the next question I wanted to ask you, because you do state on the website that you plan on conducting follow-up study, I think every three years, if I'm not mistaken. And I am curious about like what is the plan for this going forward and how might you change the study as you go along? if at all? That's a great question. So the desire to continually do it, I think really comes from, again, any data that I found while doing this work was always very, a snapshot of time in a moment, like a photograph from the 1920s. For example, is one survey of graduates that have got a postdoctoral degree in Canada, and it's from 2009, just from that one time. And I think it actually went on for 10 years, but they stopped in 2009. So we know what geoscience graduates look like 15 years ago, but we don't see that now. We can't follow that. And I think it's important that if we're looking at a metric of diversity of something to measure in our field, seeing how that evolves through time is an important metric to begin to assess how this field is evolving through time. Are we creating a more equitable space? Are we creating a more inclusive space? And it's also important to see that if we are making changes, are those changes working? Is there benefits being made? And putting in an equitable policy in place now will not have ramifications you know, for three different more years. So we will not see massive changes anytime soon. But by continually monitoring the state of diversity in this field, we can begin to assess, are we moving towards a positive direction? Is there a reason to be optimistic about the way in which this field is going? And are these policies that we're putting in actually benefiting within the space of gender and race and LGBT plus, Indigenous and disability? If I can then add to the way in which we change things, One of the mistakes that we probably definitely made in the original survey was poorly incorporating trans population, which was a mistake certainly on my part that I recognize, and that would have to be amended in the next survey. Another one that would be beneficial, again, as a failure of mine, was probably as a non-Canadian, not having a French survey for Quebec. That's an inclusivity statement in its own right, that individuals in Quebec who obviously speak primarily French should have had the opportunity for that to happen. And that is something that we can amend and is something that you learned from the first take. But yeah, absolutely should be rectified in the second approach. But broadly speaking, as far as questions go, the consistency is important. If we change the question, it may change our results. 
But I'm also wondering then, because you're focused specifically on geoscience, could your survey serve as a sort of template or model for oh. other areas of research to go forward and try to define their own gaps? Absolutely. So this is one of the things that we wrote up as well, is that I don't think I would have done this had there not been the involvement of my friend Emily in this scenario, someone who I could talk to on a regular basis of how to design surveys. I've become a bit of a survey nerd now. They are very complicated and they have to be done correctly and they require ethics approval. And you have to really work hard to ensure that your questions are not loaded or that you're using terminology that's not offensive or incorrect. And we spent a lot of time going through things like nonprofits reports and how best to ask about sexual orientation or using Stats Canada specific terms so that we would be consistent within these things. And it is the challenge. Someone who is a data-driven tectonic geomorphologist, this was a big step <laughs> away from what I was doing. And had Emily not been a part of that, I can definitely say this project probably never would have gone ahead. Or it probably would have, but it would have not gone ahead well, I think is maybe the best way of putting it. And so there is definitely a model for it, and there has to be an impetus and derive to it. But things like writing out an ethics approval is a complex thing, especially in the field you don't understand. And there has to be a desire for that, and then probably a partnership with someone who knows what they're doing to help you along with that. And so absolutely, there is definitely a model there. Anytime I get the opportunity to do surveys now, I'm now very heavily invested because I, I kind of enjoy it. But yeah, there's a model there, but there's a lot of work that has to be done as well. Absolutely. I know the ethics <laughs> very well. and It is very complex having to get things fielded through a committee and make sure that you've got everything considered treating your participants with the most respect. And absolutely. Yeah, it's a lot of work. Uh -huh. I might add just a tiny bit to that, maybe from coming back to the need for data, you know, I think that anecdotally or like looking at departments at UTM or looking within CPS or just looking at my experiences in the sciences, that physics tends to be a field where there aren't a lot of women. Certainly at UTM, it's a little bit more diverse, but our science tends to be stereotypically a very white field because there's this outdoor component and there's sort of economic barriers and safety barriers that often keep people from marginalized groups from participating in that. But that's all anecdotal and it can be dismissed, right? Because mm -hmm. it's just oh, my personal experience, which is probably biased by confirmation bias. I want to see problems and so I do. Or it's small numbers. For example, we only have two faculty members in astronomy and they both happen to identify as women in our department. So we're at 100% women in that field, but that's certainly not representative of the field in general. And so I think you had a question earlier about whether or not this survey was surprising, and it really wasn't. I mean, it confirmed all of the dire things that we're aware about you know, in this field. And I'm sure we would find the same things if we were to extend this sort of study would be extended to other disciplines. So it's not surprising, but it's important to have those numbers because they can't be dismissed. It can't be, well, that's just that one department or that's your bias sort of creeping into the observations. And so just a shout out for collecting data like this and doing surveys. And also, apparently, they're very fun. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I didn't enjoy it greatly while I was doing it, but now I really like it. It's a really bizarre one. <laughs> You're hooked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just to your point, though, Lindsay, there was the Snyder lecture that was just done recently at UTM, and it was all about Anne Innes Dag. And again, that's oh. a very like one woman's experience, and it was anecdotal they would not give that woman a tenure position. She was the expert on giraffes and had done the most study. And everyone said her book was the Bible, but she mm -hmm. could not get a faculty position anywhere. Mm -hmm. You see instances like that. Mm -hmm. It's just so maddening. How could this have happened? But it happened. You know, I think it's the combination of data and the stories, right? Because the data, you know, you can't dispute. And then the stories bring it to life and give it a face and give it that emotion and make you see the impact of the data, of the numbers. Absolutely.
And so this is my last question, but this season of the podcast is UTM in the community. And I think the work you've done highlighting these disparities in geoscience ties in with that sense of community and community support. And so I'm just wondering, based on this work that you've done and your expertise in EDI, is there anything that, you know, the broader public could do to mitigate or reduce this gap? And who do you feel is the most responsible really for offsetting some of these disparities and how to achieve more of a balance? So to come within that kind of first part about mitigating that gap and that disparity, I have to always kind of prefix this answer by saying that I don't think there's a need to close the gap statistically, if that makes sense, with quotas and making sure everything's even. It's about ensuring that that door into the room is as equitable as possible. And there's some work coming through about how treating this is very statistically about, well, what happens when we hit 50-50? It doesn't really matter about 50-50 with things like gender. It just matters that everyone has a fair shot. And that's kind of clearly not the case at this moment in time. There's a desire here for me, especially to ensure that everyone who wishes to participate can. And we need to make that space as inclusive as possible with a great sense of belonging. There's a really good quote, which I can't remember now who said it, which talks about belonging being the opposite of fitting in. I looked it up. This is a quote from Brene Brown. Because fitting in is fitting a mold, fitting what people decide for you. Belonging is being yourself in a space. And that's the goal, I think, for me anyway, to ensure that we create academic spaces or a field that ensures everyone gets to be who they are and do the work that they love with their own unique perspectives. And certainly right now that isn't the case. And that needs to be improved. And closing and reducing these issues is really important. But an initial prefix of saying that there are people who would suggest that we need to hit a number. And I don't think that's right. I think that's the wrong way of thinking about these kinds of issues. As for that within the kind of spaces, there is a litany of literature that talks about this, about how we can begin to improve Mm -hmm. many of these things from things like the hiring policies that we refer to and the regulating of hiring of postdoctoral fellows, like Lindsay's pointed to, we do have that bottleneck in place for individuals to move into faculty positions. We also have a greater improvement for improving tenure systems that account for things like family planning for cis women or individuals who can have children, including reviewing how we do that tenure process, because we have our barrier to get into the job. And then there's the secondary power that comes five or six years later. And then things like mentorship and representation. We have a field here that seems to be dominated by white men. We need to ensure that they are, or at least have the ability to mentor and support Indigenous students or race-like students and understand their experiences will be different to other students and how we supervise and mentor those people will be different to ensure that they feel inclusive or a sense of belonging within that space, as well as embracing things like Indigenous science or Indigenous terminology into the work that we do, as well as making it as accessible as possible. And that's kind of a problem for geology a little bit at this moment in time where fieldwork plays a significant role in geology, especially in Uh training, undergraduate and even graduate level. And this creates barriers for individuals with Uh self-identifying mobility issues. And there are some who would suggest that fieldwork is an absolute necessity in becoming a geologist or entering geoscience when we don't see a lot of people with disabilities designing fieldwork because there is that barrier in place. And doing so is not that difficult, I would suggest. It is just a requirement of thinking about the problem a little bit differently so that we are getting maybe field experiences through just adapted to ensure everyone can accessibly can access them. And also things like bringing the cost of these things down. 
Something that just struck me as you were talking is that there's no shortage of ideas on how we can address these <laughs> problems. And there is a long list of programs that have been tested and published that we could be adapting. And Carly, you also asked about who's responsible for the change. And you know, I think the answer is everyone. There's no one who's not responsible. And in particular, the people who have the most power in the system are the white men. It's structural, historic power. And so I think they're in a tremendous position to be advocates and allies. And I think Scott is a really great example of somebody using their power to help improve the situation. And I read this really kind of transformative study. It's Dancy and Hadari, 2023 mm. in the International Journal of STEM Education. It has a sort of provocative title, How Well-Intentioned White Male Physicists Maintain Ignorance of Inequity and Justify Inaction. And they surveyed, I think, 27 white male graduate students and faculty who all self-selected as people who care about equity, diversity, and inclusion. And they interviewed them and they found that, you know, I think this is very uncomfortable for people. Like I said, I'm a white woman of great privilege. And I think it's very uncomfortable sometimes to think about my own privilege and examine it and think about the things that I have done that, that I'm ashamed of in the past. You know, we all carry problematic beliefs. It's about unearthing them and trying to deal with them, right? But anyway, the study was fascinating. And some of the respondents talked about things like, well, well, yes, I mean, racism, sexism, this exists, but it doesn't happen in my classroom or it doesn't happen in my laboratory or in my department or in my institution or in my region. I imagine sometimes Canadians look south to the US and think about the massive problems there. And that's a way of sort of shrugging off responsibility and also being blind to the problems that certainly are happening in their classroom and laboratory and department and so on. There's often a tendency to blame other institutions that are sort of too big for this individual to deal with. So talking about K-12 education being where the problem starts or talking about class dynamics or about historical problems that are you know, beyond the power of the individual to do something about. And while those problems certainly exist, it doesn't mean that the individual can't take action. And then there's a sense of helplessness sometimes. So these problems are just so big, what I'm going to do couldn't possibly help. Or there might be negative consequences for the person. If I see somebody experiencing harassment or discrimination, if I speak up, there could be negative consequences for me or for the victim or, strangely enough, for the perpetrator. And so those are all barriers to action for everybody. But I would particularly yeah, call out white men who can really have a tremendous power and can make a really positive difference. And I'd also just one last thing, sort of plug for access programs, or in, in the case at UTM, we've developed a program that's really intended to address this leaky pipeline or hostile obstacle course, which is aimed at excellent Black students from Canada. And it's an intensive mentorship program, a cohort building program. And the intention is to mentor these students through to graduate school and ideally eventually to a faculty career. So access programs in general are important, but particularly mentoring programs that focus on increasing the pool of candidates when we attempt to hire into faculty positions right now. And so I think those sorts of programs are really important. And I'm glad that UTM and UFT has been supporting that. And then at the departmental level, I think we've done a lot of work. And Scott, highlighted some of the things that are common and well-known that we've tried to adopt. And I just also add that we've tried to change the tone and sort of normalize discussion of equity, diversity, and inclusion yeah. within the department. So we do training sessions biannual. We have a weekly post on equity, diversity, inclusion that's included in our weekly digest. And I don't know how many people read those posts. I hope they do. They're usually quite interesting articles. But just the fact that it shows up every week, week after week, reminds people that this is important. And like I said, sort of normalizes discussion of it. And I think that's been valuable in changing the tone. Only to underline some of the things that Lindsay says with no great desire to try and co-opt them as my own in any way. There is university policies that are necessary and there's great work that Lindsay does at a department level, but there are efforts that require institutional change that a department has no control over. But there's kind of the two big statements that Lindsay said that everyone has responsibility here. But certainly as a cis white man who grew up in that environment, kind of raised in that ether, 
to then step out of it, you see how simple things would improve if white men engaged. I have a great friend who once said, as a woman, I could tell my problems to a man, or I could tell my problems to the void, and the void won't tell me I'm making it up or, mm-hmm. uh, or overreacting. There is almost a desired deception that always seems to exist whenever someone presents anecdotal evidence that they are trying to take power away. They are just trying to look for their part of the plate, their part of everything, an equal share of it. With engagement, especially from those in power, especially those able-bodied cis white men, there is a much faster way of improving this by just listening to those who have these things to say, to believe them importantly, and then just to support them in what they are trying Mm. to do. And it is very easy. It is not a hard thing to do. It requires very minimal effort and it would dramatically improve a lot of things very quickly. That would just be to add to what Lindsay has already said. I think that's great. And a good positive note to end on just had me thinking about how important it is to have that support from the white men who have some power, but also just even people at the top, because I'm thinking about our principal, Alex Gillespie, who's Uh very supportive and trying to undo some of these things that we've just lived with the disparities for so long. And also, I live in a very audio-driven space, but even just in you speaking, both of you, I think I had this visual in my mind of a big colorful patch on that leaky pipeline. If there's any, <laughs> but I, we're headed in the right direction anyway with some of the things that you're doing. So it's amazing. I think Thank you. that is great. And I'm so appreciative of you both for making the time to chat with me today and to provide all of this great information. I just really want to thank you both for your time. Very much. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks, Carla, for taking the time to talk with us yeah, and cheers. You know, highlight great. this work. My pleasure. I would like to thank everyone for listening to today's show. I would especially like to thank my guests, Professors Lindsay Shanebaum from the Department of Chemical and Physical Sciences at U of T Mississauga, and Scott Jess from the School of the Environment at Washington State University. I can't thank Lindsay enough for, first of all, flagging this report for me, and to both Lindsay and Scott for being so generous with their time. We spoke for over an hour and for chatting about their important work in geosciences and EDI but also for their patience for how long it took me to get this episode out into the world. All episodes of View to the U are produced, written, edited, and interviews conducted by me, Carla DeMarco, Academic Communications and Outreach Manager in the office of the Dean at U of T Mississauga. This is a bittersweet episode for me. It will be my last one for a while as I embark on a two-year secondment that starts in February 2024 as Communications Manager with the Office of the Vice Provost Students at the University of Toronto. Stay tuned for my closing remarks to come in February. But I have to say, chatting with Scott and Lindsay was really wonderful with so many important notes and interesting insights that I'm grateful to be going out truly on a high note. View to the U will continue to be available on all streaming platforms, so your opinion still matters. If you can take the time to rate or review the podcast on whatever platform you are using today, it helps others to find the show and hear more from our great UTM academic community. And please stay tuned, the podcast may be returning in some new format as yet to be determined. Lastly, and as always, thank you to Tim Terrific for his tracks, tunes, support, and everything. Thank you.